everybody, and welcome to the PaxX Podcast, now available on iTunes. This is episode two of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. How are you doing, Max? I'm doing well, Mary. Nice to speak with you again. Looking forward to a great 2014. I think we're going to be able to do some exciting things this year and talk to some exciting people. Likewise, likewise. Lots going on, obviously, in the world of PaxX. And before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Lufthansa Systems. Lufthansa Systems Board Connect Wireless In-Flight Entertainment Solution provides passengers with access to hundreds of hours of movies, TV shows, and music, all available on their own personal electronic devices. Virgin Australia, Lufthansa, and El Al have already started rolling out Board Connect or will begin offering it in 2014, opening up new ways for communication and interaction between an airline and its passengers, this technology will have a tremendous impact on the overall travel experience. And on a personal note, I had the opportunity to use Board Connect while on board a Condor Airlines Boeing 767 and can report that I was able to effortlessly stream movies to a PED. So thank you, Lufthansa Systems. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Seth Miller, our guest, a true I, I see air that the, uh, <laughs> I see that our script didn't get that update, did it? I... <laughs> You know, we're doing this over over the holidays, Seth. Um, Seth describes himself as a true aerophile. And, of course, he's known in the passenger experience world as a mile runner and a points guru. Um, And he writes the popular Wandering Airman blog and and contributes to a number of industry publications. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Seth, I understand that you've uh, recently achieved a million miles on United. Yes, this was uh, actually earlier, I guess if this is coming out in the new year, then early last month, uh, managed to hit my million mile flight. And so that's a uh, quite a milestone. It took me about 13 years to get there. And I thought I would, I actually at one point thought I was going to get there a little quicker, but some of the rules changed and I slowed me down and there was hits and misses along the way. But it was, uh, it's nice. I think you know, I think one of the interesting things about it is that now that I have it, I care a lot less about it than while I was trying to get there. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think part of that comes into it. Maybe not that I care less about it, but, you know, certainly if I was starting again today, I would be much less inclined to try to chase it, I think is the interesting uh, sort of takeaway I've come up with. I was actually just chatting with a friend earlier today who's talking about trying to get there. And his, you know, facing the challenges he's looking at to do it. And I sort of told him, don't bother. And he's a frequent business traveler, flies a lot internationally, does a whole lot of stuff. And, you know, he'd get there if he put it, you know, put his mind to it, he would probably get there within six or seven years. And even still, it's hard for me to, you know, in good conscience, tell him, yes, you should absolutely devote your time to trying to get there. And part of that is the, process of getting there means, you know, dedicating all your energy to one particular airline, which comes with a cost and both financial and sort of experience related. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it is the way the industry has been changing lately. I mean, yes, there is still value in holding that status, but it's get seems to be diminishing over time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think as a customer, if I was both long had long term loyalty, so you know elite status of some sort. In my case, the million miles is lifetime gold status, or until they change the rules again. Um, and 
short-term loyalty, which in the airline world translates into buying expensive tickets. Huh. And so, you know, right now, I mean, I'm my year-to-year loyalty right now, I'm 1K with United. So I flew 150,000 qualifying miles with them last year, and I did it again this year. So I'll have that again for next year. And But even you know, as someone who's flown all those miles, I did it on a very, very small budget, uh, sort of pennies on the dollar sort of approach. So there's no way that I'm a good customer to them, even though I've flown all those miles. And I understand that, and they finally understand it too. And so the airlines are finally sort of getting around to fixing their programs so that someone like me doesn't get rewarded the same way as someone who shows up and actually spends a lot of money on tickets. Yes. Which which actually makes a lot of sense, right, Seth? I mean, and this is a subject that you, you covered actually for, for us uh, on the network um, and something that, you know, would love to dive into. Your your piece was called Loyalty Has Lost Its Luster. <laughs> yes. I'm a big fan um, of alliteration. <laughs> me too, me too. And uh, But I have to say, I have to admit, um, I was one of these individuals who worked for um, a company for many, many years that would handle, uh, you know, the travel or, would um, push us to always buy just the cheapest flight that we could get. So I never really focused on loyalty because I was flying on all these different airlines and it was always, you know, based on the rock bottom prices. And but kind of shamefacedly, I uh, I didn't start accumulating points uh, in any kind of serious fashion until, um, you know, I started going into business on my own. <laughs> Suddenly it became more important. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, shame on you. Don't do that. Yes, again. No. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so that's another thing is I'm not suggesting, like, don't collect points. I think that's probably the worst advice you could give someone. But, right. I, you know, obviously, if you're flying, collect the points and even sort of be smart about it. Um, to the extent that you can, if you're flying two airlines in the same alliance, pick one and put all the points in one because you can collect, you know, from both American Airlines and British Airways into a single account. Right. right? So you're not splitting your points. So doing little things like that will get you a lot further along. But at the same time, you know, I would say don't go out of your way and spend extra money just to fly any one airline solely for the points. Now, right. there's, other, there's other things that come to it with elite status and depends on how much you fly and things like that. But, you know, when I hear people saying, I almost hit 25,000 miles this year, should I spend an extra $500 to get that silver elite status? Um, I congratulate the airlines for making it seem like it's such a great benefit that people should chase after it and then quickly remind myself to tell the person, absolutely not, don't do it. It's not worth $500. Wow. Uh, and so... You know, as you get up into the higher levels of elite status, the value proposition comes a little better. And I will admit that I have, you know, gone on mileage runs. I've paid a little extra here and there to sort of top off accounts and get some of these status things. But I also don't claim to be the most rational person when I'm making travel decisions. So and I think, Mary, I know you've seen some of my itineraries, so you'd agree. I'm just amazed that you do a lot of this, most of this, right, in economy class. Am I right? I do a solid chunk of it in economy. Um, I try to get flights where I can upgrade. I have no shame about buying mistake fares that involve premium cabins. Uh, (laughs) But I end up doing a lot of my flights in economy. Uh, I think last year, I'll probably be about half total mileage flown was in economy. Wow. You're not a short guy, Seth. So, you know, but you're you're able to manage economy quite well. Yeah, and you know, you you've got a few inches on me, so it's still a little easier for me than you, I think. Right. Um, and I also will go out of my way to 
pick airlines or seats where I can find that extra inch or two of legroom. I think one of the things that's really nice with United is they've had economy plus for a long time. Obviously, now Delta has economy comfort. American has main cabin extra that they're following up on it with. But then you also have, you know, JetBlue, which has more legroom for everybody and even more if you buy the even more product. But I fly JetBlue a lot. I'm based in New York City and they're a great option for me. So that, you know, doing JetBlue and Coach is really easy. Yeah, no, it's it's a great service. Well, since we're talking about cabins, I can't think of a better segue here than into our our next topic of discussion, Seth, and that is Airbus is quietly developing a new cabin for the Airbus A320, uh, which will allow the airframer to better compete with the Boeing Sky Interior for the 737 um, next gen. Max, what do you think of this? Yeah, the 737... Sky interiors have been out. I think Boeing introduced those in uh, 2010. So, yep. so they've been out for a few years. And I think most people would consider the A320 interior to be kind of a little bit dated compared to the Boeing Sky interior. So it, it seems like time is ripe for Airbus to do something about that. Yeah, I think they're really kind of, you know, behind behind the game here a little bit. Um, you know, Boeing's got a nice head start. You've got Airbus also, of course, um, developing its uh, re-engined A320neo. It seems to me like it would be a great opportunity to roll out a new cabin with that new aircraft. It would seem kind of crazy if they didn't uh, follow the market here, especially with the pivot bins that, uh, that, that are becoming so popular, not just with the Boeing Sky Interior, obviously, but also in the retrofit market. There's a number of solutions out there. Uh, a prominent solution, of course, being the uh, Zodiac Isis cabin um, that uh, we've actually covered on the network. And uh, I don't know. What do you think, Seth? Do you think the time is now for, for a new A320 interior? I find it really, really hard to get too excited about overhead bins. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the mood lighting and such is nice. I you know Virgin America did a huge marketing push with that and Virgin Atlantic before them even uh, on those sorts of things. And it's neat and it's fun, but it really doesn't do much for me as a passenger in this sort of actually making the flight more comfortable, I feel like. I certainly loved you know, watching the 787 do the rainbow mode when ANA first was you know, rolling it out and having you know, basically flight attendants playing with their new toy hmm. uh, and pushing all the buttons on the panel. But um, yeah, I like the sort of higher open ceiling. I get that. But um, it's, it's hard for me to get too excited about those other bits it's uh it doesn't really feel i don't feel like it does much for me that's interesting because there's um you know a real passenger perception of between flying in in my own opinion um flying uh, a 7-3 without the sky interior and then transitioning over to one that has it and, and i had the opportunity to kind of compare and contrast last year on some flights that copa uh that i had to take on copa down to south america and i just had the feeling of more it had the feeling of more space in, with yeah. the sky interior. And it, maybe it's, and, and of course, a lot of it has to do with perception. Um, it is. And, you know, I actually, I did a similar thing uh, back in October where I went to, from Doha to Dubai on Fly Dubai. And on the outbound flight in the morning, I was the older config. And on the return, it was the sky interior config. Uh, and it was brighter. It certainly, I did notice a difference. Uh, part of it was that they actually had an IFE system instead of not. But, um, I don't know. I, I don't know that I could, you know, sort of put a, my finger on it and say, yes, this flight was much better. And if it was because of that. Hmm. Well, do you think that if 
Airbus is going to do something with this, either something they develop themselves or if they're working with a supplier. Do you think this is an opportunity for Airbus to leapfrog Boeing in the interior, or is, is this just going to be catch-up and there's really not much more you could do? It's interesting that you asked that because I, I posed uh, you know some of these questions to Airbus uh, when I was breaking this story on the premium side of the site. And um, I have to say that when it comes to cabin developments, I mean, trying to get anything out of uh, not only the airlines, but the airframers, it's like trying to break into Fort Knox. It's madness. Okay. And I think Airbus answered some of my questions kind of like through gritted teeth. I don't think they were too pleased um, with the whole line of questioning at all. Um, because, you know, it is really proprietary and they really do want to leapfrog Boeing Sky Interior. But you, you're absolutely right, Seth. I mean, how much more can be done? I mean, you know, Boeing has kind of, you know, it's kind to set this standard and and you know you can do a pivot bin and you can do the mood lighting and you can everybody's already going down the slimline seat route and you can do these modular lavatories and modular galleys um you know which is all being done but at what point you know are you just simply constrained by that metal tube (laughs) (laughs) Um, i I forgot i'm glad that you mentioned the pivot bin and i I was uh derelict and not commenting on that earlier i also have found that those are much harder to climb into <laughs> and so for the sake of getting more photos of myself in overhead bins, I'm horribly opposed to them. Ooh, you know, one thing we should say, though, is that the current bin on some of these A320s have had problems. And I don't know if you guys have ever witnessed this, but sometimes closing these bins are quite difficult. And I'm, th- I'm thinking it's U.S. Airways. I wrote about it a couple of years ago. Ended up having to, you know, do a fix on a lot of these uh, on a lot of these A320 overhead bins. that They just yeah. weren't working right. Have you ever had that problem where you're trying to slam it shut? I, I don't know about whether you know the mechanism failing or not, but I will say I know the uh, capacity of them was terrible. Um, I think that's one of the spaces where you know this new interior is going to help sort of dramatically. I know, right, with the Sky interior, Boeing basically went from three rollerboards to four in each sort of bin space, and that's a significant improvement as long as everybody knows to turn their bag sideways when they put it inside, and so getting that sort of improvement on the Airbus side would be similarly beneficial to passengers. United Airlines has replaced the doors on their A319 and 320 fleet to basically add extra curve to yeah. it so they're more spacious inside. And, you know, that that's sort of a stopgap in between. Uh, but the new interior will help that even more. So in that sense, I guess I have to be in favor of it because that's, you know, more space on board once – Everybody has all their bags there. Although sometimes I think that more space in the bins just means people try to stuff more stuff in there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> fair point. Yes, yes. The kitchen sink, the kitchen sink, Max. Um, just, just one point before we move on. Um, you know, what should be mentioned is, of course, that Zodiac has developed its own pivot bin solution for the A320, and it ha- it has been showing this solution for the last couple of years at the big Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg hoping to tempt Airbus to adopt this solution. And I've had some conversations uh, with airlines on the back end that say that the Airbus solution looks quite like ISIS, which is the the offering that Zodiac, but is a a different solution. So we shall see, we shall see. But ISIS has already uh, generated some customers uh, and we can expect to see that rolling out here in the not too distant future. So um, there's all kinds of interesting, you know, competitive dynamics rolling in the background and, and and who knows? Who knows where this will lead? But um, interesting days in the cabin space anyways. Yeah, for sure. 
All right. Another item that we've been looking at recently is the announcement from Amazon uh, just before the holiday that they're looking to uh, perhaps roll out a drone-based package delivery service in a few few years' time. They've called this Amazon Prime Air. Now, this came out, as I said, just before the start of the or the height of the holiday shopping season. So it it kind of got Amazon a lot of a lot of press. Uh, but the the video is is kind of interesting. In this in this video, someone places an order for a product uh, on their tablet and presses the Prime Air thirty minute delivery button. And then we switch to the warehouse, the Amazon warehouse, where uh, the item is picked and placed in a container. And then a a small octocopter takes this container, delivers the package right to the customer's doorstep. So it's uh, it's kind of appealing. It kind of uh, gets people's attention. And in fact, we really do have the technology to do this. The the small uh, unmanned aerial systems that are out there, like the ones that uh, Amazon showed in their video, uh, those things exist. They're autonomous. They have uh, GPS built into them, and they could actually perform a task like that. And in, in some uh, places around the world, they're actually being used for deliveries in a similar fashion. But there are issues associated with doing this. And I think, Mary, you had some conversations about this with Marion Blakey. I did. I actually, I pulled her aside. Well, one thing, you know, I attended the annual Aerospace Industries Association luncheon. Seth, you've been to that in the past. In fact, I think that's where I met you first. It is um, indeed. Yes, good memory. Um, and, and so I pulled her aside after she had made some kind of positive comments about um, Amazon's proposal. And I said, are you serious? <laughs> are you really, uh, you really think this is going to fly? And she, she said, she said that she felt that, uh, that Amazon had been, you know, a little bit uh, jumping the gun in terms of timeline, that bringing it uh, in 2015 just wasn't realistic. Um, but that she absolutely believed that a version or a modified version of what uh, they're proposing um, is coming down the pike, which which is really, really interesting. And I know, Max, you've been kind of following what's been going on with the FAA and, and when they're going to approve UAS test sites. And even someone the other day tweeted, what, you know, has a timeline been announced? Do you, do you have any kind of update as to where the time timeline is for that? Yeah, the FAA was given a mandate by Congress to uh, allow uh, unmanned aerial systems. And, you know, these things are called a lot of different things. Drones, UAVs, UASs. Uh, the FAA has chosen the UAS designation, unmanned aerial system. Uh, but still, people use a variety of different terms for it, usually drone. Uh, but uh, they were uh, mandated by the Congress to uh, provide for entry into the airspace by 2015. And the FAA has released a roadmap. Um, they have published a few... Uh, documents concerning that, but basically they have a huge task ahead of them. I mean, you you can imagine what would happen if anybody could uh, use these things commercially for whatever kind of application, whether it's uh, for <laughs> deliveries, um, building inspections, for uh, flood surveying, uh, crop uh, surveying, things like that. You, you could end up with a cloud of these things crashing into each other and <laughs> affecting commercial uh, aviation. And so that's a big problem. Well, the FAA is looking at all this to include things like training, certification, what are the regulations, and all that. And that's going to take years to accomplish. One of the things they're doing is they're creating six UAS test sites. 
in the in the U.S. And in fact, twenty four states have applied to the FAA to become each of them to become one of those UAS test sites. Um, these are supposed to be where kind of the basic research can be done into the technologies that are needed to support this. Things like detection of other aircraft by by drones, right? You can't have them just flying willy-nilly. They need to be able to see each other and react accordingly. Uh, so uh, the, the FAA is saying that they're going to announce these sites by the end of December, which is just a few days away. So I don't know if they're going to going to do that but there's a long long road ahead several years at least before we'll see commercial service by these things you know i I have to wonder i mean technology i think it's we're in one of those situations where we can kind of do anything we want if we decide we want to do it right it's not that we right it would be hard it's just someone has to decide this is what we're going to do um i just struggle to see the business case for it honestly i I think partly i'm biased because i live in new york city and so there's no way it's ever going to happen here but at the same time, I look at it and sort of think the only time something like this makes sense is if you have a dense enough order sort of base or customer base that you can use it a lot, right? These aren't going to be cheap. And so you're going to need to basically sort of like an airplane, you need to have it running as much as possible to make money. And so if, you know, you can only use these in uh, central Pennsylvania, sorry, Mary, um, <laughs> You know, there's just aren't as many people out there and they're not ordering as much from Amazon. And so, you know, if you have a stack of these you know, devices and they're only sending out one or two deliveries a day, it's cool, but there's no way you can pay for it. Well, the issue, that's an interesting issue, and it kind of centers around the safety issue. Um, right now, the FAA does grant uh, permission, uh, special certificates for a, a few operators to use these commercially, but you can't use them in populated areas or where there's risk of uh, injury to people or, or property or that sort of thing. And we've, in fact, seen a few accidents where someone has had the bright idea of uh, filming uh, an event uh, from the air and have some kind of a malfunction and have the, uh, the drone dropped um, into, the, into the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen some injuries. So that's, that's part of figuring all this out is how can you operate these things safely? But there are some industries that are just chomping at the bit for this. Uh, agriculture is one for sure because there are uh, there's a lot of uh, time, money, expense uh, devoted currently to things like crop surveys, um, and this is a, a really inexpensive way to perform those kinds of surveys. You can put in your GPS coordinates of your of your crops and have the uh, the drone go out and create uh, images that can be used for a, a 3D uh, graphic of the uh, of the entire crop where you can look at things like you know dryness water insects things like that so i mean there are some applications that are that are out there personally i think that there's there's billions of dollars worth of applications and that's one tough part about the, the amount of time it's going to take to develop these is because it just defers that commerce for years. Yeah, Isn't it um, funny how the, sorry, just the, the practical applications, though, aren't, of course, the ones that get the big headlines. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I, I won't at all argue, Max, that the, there's huge potential for these for legitimate commercial operations. I just don't think Amazon deliveries is one. It's probably the, the least likely to, yeah, to be feasible or to make sense. 
Um, but again, there are uh, in other countries there are uh, people who are delivering pizzas with with these things. Uh, there's uh, one uh, one place they're de- delivering textbooks, things like that. But it's I mean it, it's kind of a boutique business, and where the real money is going to be, I think, is in other applications. Very interesting, guys. Well, we're rapidly coming to a close here. I want to thank um, our listeners and let them know where we can, where they can find us. Um, you can find us online at uh, runwaygirlnetwork.com. Uh, you can follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at, at runwaygirl. And of course, be sure whenever you're tweeting about the passenger experience or industries associated with the passenger experience, you can use the hashtag, hashtag PAXX, P-A-X-E-X. Um, and uh, increasingly, we're starting to see a lot of people use this hashtag, everyone from, you know, airline lobbying groups to major uh, writers in the space. So um, certainly feel free to join in the conversation. would love to have you. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, Lufthansa Systems, and I'd like to thank Seth Miller for being our second guest. It was um, my pleasure. It was great to have you. Where can uh, listeners find you at, Seth? Uh, I use the name Wandering Aramean online, which is basically impossible to spell and no one gets it right, but uh, that's part of the fun. Uh, W-A-N-D-R dot me is my website, and there's some travel tools there and a link to the blog and all sorts of other fun stuff. Seth, Aramean, that's a, isn't that like an ancient uh, nomadic kind of tribe or something? Is that where that comes from? Yes, it is. Oh. Yeah, it's an, it's an Old Testament joke, and it turns out, there aren't many of those out there, so in some ways I win, but in most ways I seem to lose. So take that for what it's worth. And Mary, you mentioned, I think, at the beginning of the show that we're on iTunes now. We are. We are, and doing quite well, happily. And, so. and so we'll ask uh, our, our listeners, if you, uh, if you use iTunes, is you know, please go on there and give us a rating or write a review. Uh, that's really important for helping other people find this podcast. So if you do that, that would be great. We'd appreciate it. Yes, amen to that. All right, so join us again next week as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Thanks, everyone.